Welcome to the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast. I'm your host, Tim Vale, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Beaufort, CTO of Greenhouse Software. Really actually been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. I know you and I met, I don't know, was it a week and a half, two weeks ago and kind of did a prep call. And I thought, I thought that conversation was super exciting. You've obviously got a really exciting background, done some amazing things. So I'm excited to kind of talk to you today. Uh, instead of trying to read your background to you, just tell us a little bit about <laughs> how we got to this point, who you are. Uh, you, you know, obviously, we don't spend the whole podcast there, but tell us a little bit about your journey, you know, how, where you started and how you got to be where you are today, which we want to spend a lot of time talking about. Right after high school, I actually went and started a couple of businesses, both of which, you know, businesses might be an exaggeration, but a couple of companies um, that were technically incorporated and all of that. Um, that we're trying to solve different problems around the year 2000. And, and, you know, maybe just noting, I guess, one was trying to integrate bike maps with regular maps. So you remember like back then in 2000, you had MapQuest and you would like print out the MapQuest paper and bring it with you. It wasn't exactly like... Yes, you did have to do that. That's right. You had to like print it all out, like staring at this sheet <laughs> right. as you drive. I remember yeah, you that. You might yes. bring some like scotch tape and like tape it to your dashboard so you understood exactly where you needed to go. Um, so I was trying to integrate bike maps. And so Google, of course, did this in like 2010. Um, and it was a feature of Google Maps, but I was trying to make that a company. My business model did not exist. I just thought that would be cool. Turns out it would require a lot of money to make and would probably make no money. So um, ended up failing in that one. Did my first stint at a big company, first and only stint at a big company at, at Thompson Reuters, a you know, 55,000 person global megacorp. Um, worked there for, for a while, um, you know, learned a, a ton about uh, you know, scaled up problems of, of different sorts um, and realized, you know what, I'm still a startup guy. I'm going to go and, uh, and you know, join a smaller startup. So I met the co-founders of Greenhouse and um, spent a little bit of time with them and you know, took, took the dive and became their first engineer a little over 10 years ago. You're for, you were their first engineer? Yeah, I wrote the, the first lines of code. The, the company didn't officially have a name yet. They hadn't closed their funding round. I remember when I was about to quit my job, I'm like, so this haven't closed the round yet. <laughs> I'll be your first employee. Like, what happens if you don't <laughs> in terms of me being paid if I quit my job? And they're like, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll pay you. Yeah. And, and so I was just like, okay, fine. So I quit my job and, and went and started Greenhouse. That's awesome. Well, that, I mean, that to me, that's the fun part about it, right? Is, is starting, you know, when, when it's so small, you know, like the, the whole world is your oyster. I think it's so exciting. So, so tell, what is your role today? And then do tell us, I mean, obviously I know Greenhouse very well, which we're going to talk a little bit about. I'm going to ask for a favor. Uh, but tell, you know, kind of tell the listeners what, you know, what your role is and what Greenhouse is today, because I think it's, it's a really neat thing. We're, we're huge users of it, obviously, at Cockroach. I'm the CTO. Um, I've kind of been head of engineering with, with a few different titles over time, but uh, I'm, I've been uh, CTO of the company, steering the technical ship. Um, I've also uh, you know, worn a few other hats since I've been there forever. So I ran customer support for a while and professional services and product and design. And, you know, you just kind of have to do whatever you got to do when you're at various stages of the startup lifecycle. Um, what Greenhouse is, we're, I think, about like 900 people now. Um, we are, uh, you know, I think we're, we're well past it now, but um, we had a press release, which I know I can reference, um, about a year and a half ago, where we crossed $100 million of ARR mark. So it's kind of an at-scale succeeding startup, which is, is really great. Um, we were ranked number one best place to work, um, you know, I, I think by Fortune magazine, uh, you know, just this year and have had you know, number one best place to work from Glassdoor and, and a bunch of other things. So it's a really sort of like positive work environment generally, um, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's really great. And then in terms of what we do, we make hiring software. 
And so that covers everything from you know, going to find candidates and, and bring them into your pipeline, running a thoughtful, um, you know, structured interview process, um, you know, ensuring that um, the, the things that you institute are uh, sort of operationally effective and scalable, that they, um, you know, we take DEI into account in terms of how we build our products, um, all the way through employee onboarding. And so getting somebody ramped up. So we cover tons of different problems across that spectrum. Yeah, so we, you know, at Cockroach Labs, obviously a growing startup um, and not, not quite as far along or we did celebrate our eighth anniversary at Cockroach uh, and I've been there four years. So it's been kind of an interesting journey to, to see it grow. But but we've been big greenhouse years and obviously as a, as a growing company, we've been we've been hiring a lot. Um, and so we use it, I think, to kind of do all of our I mean, we may use it more, but the, the way I interact with it is certainly for for the hiring process, the review of candidates, et cetera, et cetera. And the favor I'm going to ask of you is, um, you know, our 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 chief people officer runs a very tight ship in terms of, you know, you interview candidates, you got to get your feedback in under a certain SLA. And I think I think I may be the worst in the company at this. Um, you know, we have to we're encouraged to write kind of very very lengthy notes, which is appropriate and get them in, in a, in a certain amount of time. And I am absolutely horrible about it. So I was hoping maybe now that I have like this inside track at technical leadership at greenhouse, you can like alter the code somehow. So that like, if, if Tim Vale submits his feedback, it doesn't register or notify our chief people officer that he's way past the SLA. Cause I, I, I spent, I spend a lot of time in there writing feedback, but I almost never get it in on time. So I will certainly spend a bunch of time talking to the product team about that. Uh, I think a <laughs> uh, fantastic idea. I'm, I'm glad I came on the podcast and heard that might, might change the, the course of the business uh, you know, for the better. Uh, but yeah, we, I mean, there's like accountability stuff in there, right? Like you're supposed to do certain things and, and yeah, that's, that's a good example of it. Um, but do you feel guilty? Cause you know, that's, that's probably part of it is like, you should feel guilty if you don't do it, you know, you said you were going to do right. I, I do. There, there's a lot of guilt associated with it, which, which I don't need more guilt. So, you know, I just somehow, if I could, at some point I'll get to the point where I, I, I do these things on time, of course, but, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's so we're we're in the big ideas in app architecture podcast, which I guess uh, means we should we should attempt at least to talk about not only big ideas but architecture as well. Um, maybe let's 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 talk a little bit about kind of how you've built. I mean, you you were the first engineer. I mean, how have you built greenhouse? You know, how is the you know what does it look like today? And maybe maybe it'd be interesting. I mean, given the, the length of time you've been there, you know, how is it? How does the architecture evolve? Because you guys are doing a ton of stuff. I mean, I, I you. You shared with me previously some pretty interesting facts and figures about you know how much uses there is. It just I, I'd love to hear just kind of how the the tech stack, the architecture, if you will, has kind of evolved over time. I'd imagine you've seen lots of changes, lots of changes. Yeah, we we definitely have. Um, I think you know there there are probably specific things that we needed to figure out that informed the architecture. Um, more than anything else. So one of them was, you know, how do you add customers indefinitely to a SaaS application? Because, you know, that's that's a business critical problem. If you hit some vertical scaling limits and you no longer feel like you can add more customers, the business basically grinds to a halt and it stops. And so this was like a, one of my great fears as Greenhouse was coming up that we wouldn't quite figure that out. Um, and the types of solutions you often have to implement to be able to add more customers kind of indefinitely often do take a while. Like they, they're architectural, they're, they're like fundamental changes to how you organize um, and, and run your systems. And so um, I wound up going on a little bit of a SaaS CTO tour. I, I you know, chatted with 
um, a bunch of uh, the, the venture capitalists who had invested at different points and they made some intros to other people who were further along. And yeah, I asked them like, how, how did you scale? How did you architect stuff? So sort of like, you know, my own personal podcast with, with all of these, you know, luminaries who kind of knew what they were doing. And what I realized was, you know, there is no one size fits all problem, you know, fit, fits all solution for, uh, for scaling up. But SaaS businesses um, tend to have a really good sort of shard key baked in, which is that you can separate organizations from each other. Organizations generally don't need to or want to uh, know any of the information about another organization when they're using the application, it's just them. So that meant that we could separate people out into separate databases, um, and that created uh, you know, the, a path forward. So we, we took a really sort of blunt approach and said, you know what, let's make a greenhouse. So, you know, greenhouse having, you know, search capabilities and caching and queues and web servers and a database and all of those things. Um, and let's print sort of copies of them and, you know, make sure that we have, you know, services or, or other sort of data exchange, um, you know, protocols in place where we do actually need to share data. But most of the time we know we won't need to. And so if you look at today, we have uh, eight different silos, which is what we call them, um, that contain separate sets of customers. Um, and, uh, and that allows us to keep adding customers indefinitely, um, which is which is good. Uh, we figured out that we could use, um, this is actually kind of an in interesting goal setting insight. We could use the amount of revenue we were generating as a good sort of trigger. So it was like, you know, after X number of dollars, you know, you kind of need another silo. Um, and so you need to, to spin that up. Um, and that allows you to also manage you know, cost in, in a relatively consistent way as, as you continue scaling. Um, other nice things about that style of architecture is that when there's a failure, most of the time the failure is isolated. And so, you know, even with HA, you know, everything, um, you still end up introducing issues. Uh, and so um, that architecture allows you to, let's say, deploy to one silo, see if things are going well, um, you know, sort of blue-green style, and then, you know, roll, roll out um, to, to everyone else. When something happens, a queue gets backed up, it gets backed up in one place. And so there's almost never anything that grinds the whole system to a halt. It would have to be like DNS level you know, something even more catastrophic. You know, and, and I wonder if, if you get this sometimes when talking about architecture, I've certainly been, you know, involved in plenty of conversations where, and maybe it's not architectural necessarily, but kind of the word silo, you know, people like, oh, you siloing, you know, it, you know, I think in, in some levels that, that almost has kind of a negative connotation. I mean, the way you explain yeah, it, obviously, green, it makes right? total green, sense, right? Get green. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but do you get that at all? I mean, it's like, hey, wait a minute, wait, wait, Mike, you mean your architecture silo? Do you know, what, does that mean? You're not sharing. Does that mean, you know, it's inefficient? I, I think it's sort of like a bleed over in terms of, um, you know, people hear, oh, I think the engineers feel siloed or designed as siloed from product. But, you know, I, I think it's I think it's just sort of a different use of um, the language. And, and you know, in our world, um, it does mean separateness, but separateness is, is good in certain ways for this type of architecture. Uh, and I agree that it's often bad when you have certain roles that are, are siloed from others and they're not collaborating effectively. So, you know, it, it could mean both. <laughs> now, obviously, you know, at Cockroach, you know, part of our big story is, you know, resilience. And, you know, we, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is you survive anything. So, you know, that, that whole kind of theme is important to us. I actually really though like this idea that like, you know, kind of a small blast radius right? Should something happen. So if, you know, if, if one silo goes down, it doesn't, it doesn't impact the rest of the business. I am curious, you know, and obviously no need to, to give specifics, but what does it mean? I mean, you know, if, if a customer's silo, if you will, is offline, I mean, what's the, what's the impact to the business? You know, is this, 
you know, fire alarms ringing everywhere, you know, walk, walk us through if you can, like what happens if, if things were to go down maybe, maybe you're fortunate and they haven't, but what does happen if things go down? Yeah. I think things don't really, you know, sort of fail all at once so much anymore. Um, you know, I think we're, you know, we're, yeah, at least four nines of, of uptime generally, uh, discrete things happen though, that might make it feel like it's not working the way that you want it to. And, and so, you know, when that does happen in a given silo, given that silos are actually still quite big, um, the impact actually is, is significant. There's a bunch of customers who might be, you know, frustrated when something bad happens, um, you know, a queue gets backed up and something's not getting processed in a timely manner, some other sort of underlying issue. Uh, so we have a fairly robust sort of incident management process and we have tons of automations around it. Um, a lot of it's driven off of Slack. And so I know you can just buy tools like this nowadays, like all this stuff baked in, you can just turn it on. We wound up developing a bunch of this in the sort of pre, you could buy a tool phase. And so, um, you know, you would uh, type in a Slack command to start an incident and it would automatically create a, you know, a Zoom room that would be recorded. Uh, it would invite all of the right people who are on rotations into a, you know, shared channel. It would put notifications in different places so that there was, you know, high visibility. It would automatically log an entry. So all, all that sort of stuff happens. And you have a bunch of people sort of swarming it, um, you know, the hour, although almost almost nothing is, is sort of happening in the middle of the night anymore, which is is fantastic because, uh, you know, in the early days, it was like me with a backpack and, uh, you know, wherever I went and in the middle of the night, I need to leave my ring around just in case. <laughs> so. Interesting. Uh, on that particular topic, I we did a webinar not so long ago with, uh, he works for us now, but at the time, um, uh, this gentleman, Sean from DoorDash, and, and I, I think we use the term in the webinar, you know, you know, what do you do when things go bump in the night? And, and I thought his response was a really interesting one I never thought about. Is it like, for example, at DoorDash, they were less concerned about what happens at night, you know, a bump in the night. They were more concerned what happens during the day, you know, like, hey, you know, it's peak hours, you know, middle of the day, what happens if, if failure occurs then? Because it can, you know, at that time can be you know, quite costly. If it happens in the night, hey, maybe nobody's looking. That's okay. But you don't want it to, you don't want going down when everybody's trying to get their uh, their feedback in. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting perspective. We uh we do have a bunch of customers in Europe and Asia, and so it's it's daytime somewhere. But of course, it's always always worse in the U.S. So yeah, when something happens, you know, we we kind of swarm it, and I think. Importantly, not everybody freaks out. So you know, said like our fire alarms going off, like there are the alarms that get people into the room. Um, but the important thing is that everybody stays sort of cool, calm, and collected, and is able to, uh, you know, carefully and rationally figure out, um, you know, what's going wrong, identify the issue, and um, you know, work on figuring out what the solution space looks like and apply the change. And so, um, you know, most of the time, issues can be resolved really quickly. You realize exactly what it was. You have a bunch of mechanisms like, you know, rollback in place. Um, you know, if there were some type of code change um, that, that caused the issue, um, we have, you know, certain patterns where, you know, we know that we can auto scale up, um, you know, certain resources if, if something's happening. But there are other times where you actually have to do something a bit, you know, that, that requires deeper research or a more fundamental uh, or lower level change. Um, and, and that required cool, calm uh, energy in order to figure out. Do you ever get worried? It's like, you know, kind of one of the first engineers, you know, there's going to be some issue and they're going to go back in the Git blame history and they're going to say this, wait a minute, this is Mike's code. Mike did this. So did they ever, ever. They have <laughs> done that. Now, most of my code that could cause issues has already been replaced by better code. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I probably wouldn't get blamed anymore. But even if I did, I, I, I think that's fine. I mean, we, we generally do the, the thing that I think most tech companies do, which is like we have a blameless culture. We you know blame uh, 
uh, you know, we, if we blame anything, we're blaming, you know, the process or the guardrails um, and trying to iterate on, you know, the environment uh, that people are developing software in and not, you know, uh, getting getting too caught up on the individual developer because, you know, writing software is really complicated. It is. It is so hard. You know, I mean, we say a lot uh, to hear caution. Nothing is easy. Nothing. Um, I, out of curiosity, how big is the engineering team? So in total, I think I just saw yesterday, it's like a 145 and that's not, not including like product and design and you know, all, all those folks. Um, in terms of people really actively working on the product, I think it's probably a little over a hundred. How often are you guys releasing? Many times per day. Um, so last year, I think we did something like 1200 releases. So that's a, an indicator we've... Uh, yeah, we have full, you know, continuous integration, continuous delivery. Um, you know, we've had those pipelines in place. We really invested in developer tooling pretty early. And so if we go all the way back to you know, the beginning, like a lot of companies that were started in 2012, we were able to use Heroku and we were all like, oh my God, this is so great. You can do all of these things super easily that you know, would have uh, been pretty hard in the past. And so I, I think Heroku, you know, did an amazing job of innovating, um, but they also wound up doing things like pricing their databases like six times more than Amazon. And so eventually everyone was like, oh, I guess we got to, I guess we got to go. And so um, we got on the same boat, but we didn't want to give up all those capabilities. So again, not all that uncommon at that moment, but in like 2015 or 2016, as we're um, you know, migrating off, we wound up building similar types of tools in-house so that developers could scale up and down, you know, servers or workers or, um, you know, provision new things. Um, and that tooling um, ultimately led to us releasing a, a capability around ephemeral environments. Um, in I think it was early 2016. So, you know, we were the only startup I knew of at the time that had these ephemeral environments. Somebody makes a new you know, pull request and bam, they could put something, um, you know, on a server, um, you know, in a, in a clean state right away. Um, you know, that was all containerized and be able to promote it all the way through. Um, and that also provided, I think, a, a nice level of encapsulation um, because, uh, you know, the the interface that we provided, that was the, our Heroku-like interface, uh, we actually ended up calling it Dejoku because the original version of Greenhouse's name was Dejoko, Dan John Company. They picked a name to, to change. They were like, let's pick a bad name. Um, and so it was kind of like a, a play on those words. But we were able to swap out the back end, like go from you know Mesos and Marathon to Kubernetes and adopt you know sort of more modern practices as we as we went without having to to change the interface that developers got used to. I do have a, a technical follow-up question, but since you mentioned names and you know we're we're named after a pesky little bug and people I swear, you know, to this day are like, why? Why did you do this? What is the story behind? I mean, obviously you just shared kind of what the, the original name was, but you know, the, the name Greenhouse, is there is there a Kind of a, a story behind it. There is. Um, so the co-founders of Greenhouse, as part of their sort of painted door experiments of like, let's see if this idea is valid and, and tested out there, um, they wound up creating a structured hiring class at General Assembly. And so this was in like you know late 2011, early 2012. Um, I think it was called "How to Make Hiring a Strength of Your Company," and it was really well attended. And one of the people who attended was um, a person who specialized in naming things like that was that was literally her job she was like a you know a, ran a sort of brand consultancy that focused on like picking names for products um and uh and you know she had met dan and was like you seem really good at business stuff can we trade <laughs> and so she proposed um i will help you name your company and you know you give me some business advice for for how to scale up my brand company 
So she created this whole deck, which I actually ended up reviewing, like, I think my, you know, maybe it was a month into Greenhouse while they were still picking the name. And they went through the whole story of like, well, you can do like a really literal name, like, you know, Jobvite or, you know, job this or, you know, snag a job, right? Hot or, jobs. Yeah, exactly. You know exactly what it is. And, and uh, it's very clear, no ambiguous, uh, you know, no, no ambiguous. Uh, ambiguous naming or you could go with something really abstract like Altria it's like they don't sound like a company that might be killing everyone but they might be right um, and and so you have no idea what they're doing or you can try to pick a name um, you know that evokes a certain type of emotion um, but is founded in a real world and so like what are the things that people feel and you know think about when they think about hiring it's like well you know it's growth it's like the you know the next stage of my career it's that you know Things might be a little sunnier, right? So you can think of a lot of sort of brand associations from Greenhouse with, you know, getting a new job or hiring or growing. Um, and uh, and so that became kind of the core of it. Wow, that's really that's really fascinating. Yeah, it, that's actually, you know, kind of an uplifting positive. I love the visual imagery of that. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, when we have to describe our name, we have to talk about like, something people really discuss people. That was a little bit technical, which... <laughs> so um, one of the things in that brand deck was... Well, you could also use this sort of plant theme to name future products. And so, you know, you could create new products like Greenhouse Rose or Greenhouse, you know, Oak or whatever it was. And so I thought, oh, that's that's really interesting and, uh, you know, clever. We should probably do that. We didn't end up doing that broadly. But one of the first things we needed to name was an API that we created so that people could do data migrations and you know, pull pull their data out um, you know, if, if things hadn't worked out in the early days. Um, and so I wound up naming it Harvest. And so you know, because you could harvest all of your data, it wound up being the name for you know, the API more broadly and all of the other the stuff that, that we dangled off of it. But a bunch of other ETS companies wound up creating Harvest APIs. As if this was like a type of API, as opposed to a name completely made up off of the greenhouse brand. And so, uh, occasionally, you know, customers will get on um, and say, "Like, do you have a Harvest API?" <laughs> as if it's like a you know a first class citizen of the API world. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, again, being named after a bug, we just again we celebrated our eighth anniversary, and so there's kind of like a lot of reflection. And in a cockroach, everything is named after the bug, right? Or some some part of the bug. So, you know, like cockroaches, as they, they grow and mature, it's called molting. So in our onboarding process, right, you don't, uh, you know, I don't know what it's called at other, other places, but we molt. And, and when we get together, it's a roach fest. And speaking of APIs, and I know you, you and I touched on this a, a couple of weeks ago, but I, if you don't mind, I'd love to just kind of revisit this topic just because uh, it, it's always been kind of a, an interesting topic for me. Architecturally, as I know, as I'm sure you're well aware, you know the the industry for many years just fell head over heels in love with this idea of microservices, um, nano services. You know, just I mean, you know, probably better than anybody the kind of the lure of of converting your application to to these these kinds of concepts. You know, what what's been your take on that? And and you know, as you guys have have evolved the architecture over over the last couple of years, you know, are you a big microservices shop? Uh, can or should you admit that? I would say that um, I am fundamentally not dogmatic and don't get into, you know, the, the religious discussions about these types of things or, or you know, get super into whatever the, the trend is. There are times when microservices are absolutely the right approach. There are times when it's not worth the overhead. Um, and so, 
uh, you know, the, ultimately you want to sort of understand like what is the business justification for any significant technical change? And what is the cost associated with, um, you know, with whatever the thing is? And so in certain cases, it makes a lot of sense to have something across an HTTP boundary. And other times, you really just want isolation. And actually, it's only a hindrance or slows things down to, you know, have something you know, go, go over a network. Forget, forget HTTP specifically, but go, go over a network to, to make certain types of requests. Um, and so there should be a reason that you need separateness. Do you need separate scaling? Do you need um, you know, your test suite to run a lot faster? Is it going to change frequently? And one of the justifications people often end up using, which I think is sort of incomplete, is, well, you know, we need teams to be able to operate independently. You can do other things, even around a monolith, um, in order to make them operate independently. You can, you know, assign components and make sure that they're strong component ownership. It doesn't have to be across a network boundary. It doesn't have to be a totally separate code base that's you know deployed separately. Um, and and you know people can still uh, you know be be pretty productive. Um, other teams can pull requests in you know just just the same way. Um, so I think a lot of the, the underlying patterns of we should have isolation so that teams can have a high level of ownership can be achieved without microservices being an architectural constant in how you build everything. The costs, of course, if you have many, many databases um, you know, that are all small, you have to maintain many, many databases. Um, anytime you want to join data from one thing to another, um, you know, that also requires uh, you know, that, that you do um, a bunch of extra, uh, you know, extra work when, when you're setting across databases where you might just you know, write in a, a join if you are on the same database. And so you have to monitor all the services separately. They're going to be finicky in their own ways. Um, so there are times when it's good and, and times when it doesn't make sense. For us, we have like a monolithic core with a bunch of microservices around it. And I remember hearing a story. I'll just give you uh, one, which was from, I will I will just not name the company, just not to cause issues. Um, but there was a, a you know company that was doing a bunch of development in New York and had like a thousand engineers working, um, you know, not not even an exaggeration. And their main thing was convert uh, the code base from monolith to microservices, and that was kind of like the goal. Six years worth of work with no new features. This is like ultimately what happened. So did it scale? Yeah, and it was you know architecturally beautiful in certain ways. But ultimately, like, you know, if you sacrifice six years worth of, you know, product development advances, that's quite a big sacrifice. So there has to be a good reason that that has to be the solution as opposed to something else. And so I think we should just be pragmatic when we make these decisions. Now, I, you know, it's that's why one of the reasons I, I've so enjoyed talking to you, you know, these last couple of weeks is that, um, you know, like this idea of pragmatism, you know, right, not being so dogmatic because you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, some of these things do have this like religious fervor around them. And, um, you know, I, in my role, you know, both at Cockroach and in previous lives, you know, you end up working with companies of all shapes and sizes and, and engineering teams of, of, of varying levels of sophistication and maturity. And it is interesting. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, read a blog or go to a, a, an event and like, we're going to adopt this technology come hell or high water because it's the thing to do right now. And, and oftentimes, you know, maybe not as much attention is paid to you know, well, you know, what does this actually mean to, to the business? Can I, or will I achieve like actual goals when going down this path? And, and that, you know, that story that you just shared does not surprise me. We used to run into folks all the time and still do to some extent who are, you know, just hell bent on, on some technology or some architectural concept, regardless of how well it works for them, you know, because it's like perceived as the thing to be or thing to do. 
Yeah, and I think you know the the best developers really understand you know what are, what are the costs and and you know value associated with the decisions they're making, um, and when they do fully understand that and they they try to vet it out, um, I think that should provide a more skeptical lens on uncertain types of you know sort of new hot technologies. Um, also, just being around for a while and seeing all of these waves where it's like if you're not doing things in a spa, then you you know clearly have the wrong architecture. It's like, well, again, it depends, right? There are certain things where like, yeah, that was an innovation that, you know, made certain types of applications better. And for other applications, it made things harder and worse and bad. And like, so, you know, you know, we, we should look at these trends, understand them, you know, not rush and maybe not be first adopters for, for all of them. Um, and we shouldn't buy all of the value that's being pitched by the zealots who are out there advocating for any given architecture. Um, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, the, the consequences show up a little bit later um, in blog posts, like we switched everything to a spa and our company's dead. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that might not be the reason, but like you may have wasted a ton of time as a result, because maybe that didn't really solve the problem you had. That's so funny. All right. Well, you have been very generous through your time, so I don't want to keep you much longer. But I, I there are kind of three things I, I had written down and you and I touched a little bit on them, but. You know, and we don't have to do these in any particular order, but, you know, curious about because you've got a wonderful bookshelf behind you. Um, so I know you, you're a reader. Um, you know, what are you reading uh, or what have you been reading? What's what's or what do you like to read, even if, if something hasn't been there lately? You know, I'd love to hear kind of, um, you know, what keeps you up at night is that is kind of the CTO of Greenhouse. But then, you know, maybe end on, on a helpful, a positive note. You know, what is where for us, this is the beginning of our fiscal year. You know, what are you excited about looking into the future for, for this year? And, and you tackle those in any order you want. All right. So what am I reading? Um, I almost have like an embarrassing answer right now because it's going to sound really pretentious and I just happened to hey. look across it. Uh, I'm, I'm reading uh, The Social Contract by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Interesting. Okay. I have not read this. Is this... Uh... I hadn't either. Yeah. It's, it's just like one of those, you know, sort of classics of, you know, political thought um, and, you know, what rights we have in the world and you know, what rights other people have over us. And it's absolutely brilliant. Like every, every sentence, you almost want to like back up and stop and think about it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, really an absolutely incredible, uh, you know, incredible thinking. It's not, it's not even the literature. The literature is just an expression of the thinking. Um, you know, the thinking is, is you know, super incredible and has absolutely nothing to do with anything I'm doing at work. Um, but I'm, I'm enjoying, uh, you know, that, that a bunch <laughs> right now. Oh, I, I look. I, as I shared with you before, I love this kind of stuff. And and you know, it's funny. Yeah, we don't all have to. We're in technology. We don't even have to read technology books. I mean, I think working with people, understanding people, understanding, you know, uh, the dynamics is, is super important. I, I actually just started. I flew back yesterday. Just started reading. What is it? Laws of Human Nature. I think. Have you read this book? I don't think I've read that one. No. Um, I, but uh, just fascinating. It's it's like, you know, what drives people to behave the way they are and, and it providing kind of all sorts of like, you know, scientific insights into how evolution played into kind of the current state of human nature. So uh, I'll have to definitely look that that book up because uh, I, I need something after I, I get through this one. I think it's actually free on Audible because. Oh, is it? OK. It's like out, right. of, out of copyright and, and old. So they have a bunch of things like, uh, you know. Uh, you know, Keynesian, um, you know, books on economics and things like that that are they're just free because they're they're old. Uh, and then, sorry, remind me because you had three questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything yeah. keeping you up at night right now? I mean, you know, you go to bed, put your head in the pillow, and like, oh boy, 
Yeah, uh, literally, it is uh, the fact that I have three little kids and <laughs> they're constantly sick and I'm constantly sick as a result. I, we had to reschedule this, I think, uh, in part because I, I was sick and you can probably still hear the end of a cold. <laughs> you know, no, I sound even, great. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, even even now. Um, but, you know, they, they wake up in the middle of the night when when they're sick and, you know, I, I mostly feel bad for them um, when they were doing it every night when they were newborns. You know, I mostly felt bad for me. Uh, but you know, at this point, I, I, you know, mostly feel bad for them. Like, oh, they're so stuffed up and try to help them in the middle of the night. But they they literally keep me up. Uh, Non-literally, I think the same thing that everyone else is dealing with, which is just there's there's a lot of uncertainty. It's hard to plan during periods of uncertainty. You know, do we. Uh, what bets do we place on the future? Um, is it that you know we're heading into a economic rebound? Is it that we you know need to be more careful with uh, you know where where we invest our energies over the next few years because it could be a long you know rocky road? No, nobody knows, and anyone you know who says otherwise is obviously you know, full of it. Um, and so that's that's you know it doesn't necessarily keep me up at night, but it's a thing I think that. Everyone, um, you know, not just across the tech industry, but maybe express, you know, especially the tech industry is worried about. Couldn't agree more. It's uh, it's, it's tough out there for us, you know, for everyone. Uh, I just woke up this morning and read about, you know, more layoffs happening in different corners of the world. So yeah, I think the uncertainty is adds just another layer on top of kind of the big fun tension cake that we all, or anxiety cake that we all uh, live and deal with every day. But on a more positive note. We'll end with what are you hopeful for? What are you excited about this uh, this coming year? Yeah, uh, let's see. Um, maybe I'll I'll give a, a multi part answer. So you know, for me personally, um, I'm just excited to be sort of like out there in the world so much more. You know, we we had newborn twins during you know, pandemic, and you know, I'm fully sort of engaged back out there in the world, and and uh, you know, I, I feel like a tremendous amount of you know positive energy. You know, there's more. You know, travel happening, seeing people. There's, there's, a, there's, there's actually a really amazing energy, I think, um, in parts of, uh, you know, parts of humanity right now uh, that I think I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Um, in terms of work stuff, I'm really grateful to be, for, you know, working, um, working for a company that is being conservative and careful, and you know, we um, we're already pretty good at, you know, not setting lots and lots of money on fire as we were you know, building the company, and so. Um, you know, we have not been uh, feeling like we're in dire straits, um, despite the fact that, you know, the economy sort of is what it is. Um, and I think that's been, you know, that's been amazing to to feel like the, the comfort of that. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, how things are, are meshing with, um, you know, this generation of, of the team. We're over 10 years in. And one of the things we always took pride in is that, you know, people who started working at Greenhouse wanted to stay here long term. Last year out of, you know, all the you know, 140 some odd people that that are um, you know on my team now. Uh, one person left all of 2022. One, and and so um, you know, just being part of a, a culture that feels as positive as it does is um, like you know, an everyday gift. Um, you know, I've, I've worked at places where people are you know wake up unhappy, they are unhappy throughout the day, and they go home feeling unhappy. And you know, that's that generally I think is not the case that people. You know, may uh, you know, may get a little bit more fulfillment out of their day. They get a lot of kindness and, and empathy from colleagues, and they get to do good work. So, um, I'm happy to work for a place where, where all that's true. That's awesome, Mike. Well, listen, this was a fantastic uh, conversation. I do so deeply appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, just great, great stuff. And looking forward to well, I'm not sure I'm going to look forward to f continuing to add feedback into greenhouse, but I will certainly 
I'll certainly do better next time. And if you can, um, talk to the engineering team, see if we can get that, uh, get that fixed. So I don't, uh, no problem. I don't we'll keep just put a trouble. string literal right in there. If Tim Vale, <laughs> if Tim Vale, yeah. <laughs> no alerting. Awesome. Mike, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the big ideas and app architecture podcast. I'm new to this. So if you have any thoughts or feelings, would like to drop us a line and let us know how we did. I'd love to hear about it. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you.